Welcome to Mechanical Freak. We're broadcasting live from somewhere under the agency, where thanks to a kind word from John Krasinski, motivated <laughs> in part by a pathological need to devise the ultimate news machine of fairness and balance, we're pitching our new show, The Bad News Network. <laughs> Wish us luck. That's a little bit of foreshadowing because the Doomers are in the house. It's Brian and myself calling no no glee no happiness no uh silver linings and a guest uh re- this i think is the fourth or fifth time we've had Marianne Henderson on the show historian friend of the show uh welcome back thanks for being on hi thanks for having me ready to get bleak with it <laughs> oh yeah well boy do we have a show planned for you then um but before we really get dark uh you and i were talking about this Brian before we started taping that and I couldn't remember if we actually got this on the record or not, but at some point we were all having a nice laugh about political science. And that, that came up in uh, the capital D discourse recently, didn't it? Yeah. So hilariously, I think a week or two ago, I, and I'm almost positive it was on the show. I brought up how, when I was taking political science classes in college that we used to map via graphs and charts <laughs> democracy right <laughs> and everybody had a good laugh about this this is one of my favorite stories to tell people about how stupid college is um and colin i want to believe <laughs> i have to believe that you must have thought brian and greg are like fucking with me a little this can't possibly be really true not <laughs> in the gilded halls of the american academy <laughs> Well, it was a revelation. I'll put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) And almost as if we manifested it with our minds, (laughs) we get a post on Twitter from, I mean, who even cares what her name is? Some political science hack, you know, from some fucking college who is, of course, doing the uh, actually Cuba's bad guys. Uh, We should support (laughs) the CIA coup. It'll go. It'll be good this time. uh, Bullshit. But in order to support it, instead of giving the usual dumb arguments or doing what everybody else was doing, which was uh, posting pictures of poverty in the Dominican Republic and then saying, look, guys, this is what people have, people have to live in Cuba. Right. Yeah. Uh, instead of posting doing that, uh, she posted some graphs of Cuban democracy. <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> if you follow the graph <laughs> right when the Cuban revolution happens in uh, what, 61, uh, that graph takes a big dip. And, uh, you know, that democracy, no good after that. Uh, and that's irrefutable science, guys. Yeah, that's authority trends, 1946 <laughs> to 2013. And then the other graph that she posted in the same uh, post has no labels on the y-axis. Yeah. It just says code book category, and then it says min and max. So I, I don't They just I forgot to label the y-axis. It just kept working. Yeah. And then on the bottom, it says liberal democracy democracy index apparently i don't yeah so no idea i shit you not we used to sit in class and like uh what's the tweet or whatever about like the holding the you know big needle that says racism and like looking to the audience (laughs) to see like where i should push it you know it was like that they'd be like all uh they put countries up on the board and they'd be like america and then like you'd be holding the democracy needle and we just shout from our desks or whatever and it'd be like oh (laughs) 7.2 
And uh, yeah, I was so we just got to take a little a little, you know, dance in the end zone for I think maybe manifesting this horrifying <laughs> on Twitter. And I'm just glad that other people got to see it and instantly everybody uh, rejected it and thought it, it was ludicrous, which it is. Uh, but I was I just happy because I felt like a little insane being the only person or feeling like the only person who knew this was going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you made it happen. Um <laughs> All right. Well, now with that little bit of joy out of the way, we can get back to uh, the darkness that is this world we live in. Um, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about climate change and uh, what it's been doing around the world. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. Uh, look, we all, I think, can admit right now that we owe Roland Emmerich an apology. <laughs> the man's a fucking visionary. <laughs> he maybe, knew it was coming. Yeah, maybe the not just the greatest director of our generation, which I, I have been saying now for years, but uh, maybe the greatest thinker, philosopher Ooh, wow. of our generation. Uh, we watched a video. I posted a video for you guys from Deutschwelle uh, of the floods in Germany where it's a bunch of people standing on a bridge and you just see a house, a giant house just floating <laughs> down the river and it just takes out an equally enormous tree with yeah. zero effort, almost yeah. hitting the very bridge everybody's standing on. <laughs> and it's incredible. The footage is, I think there's over 200 dead at this point. It's incredible. Yeah, it's horrifying. It was then followed up by the you know Henan province in China receiving a year's worth of rain in three days and having even more terrifying footage of flooding. Um, this is real into the world shit. Yeah. Unbelievable stuff. I mean, I'm sure everybody saw this, but it was, there was footage of people trapped in the subway. Um, there was footage of uh, some kind of metalwork plant that had exploded yeah, it's an aluminum smelting plant. Yeah. And the thing about when you're uh, you know, when you're basically making aluminum, right? Uh, is everything's all good so long as you just don't dump a bunch of water <laughs> on it. In which case it becomes incredibly explosive. <laughs> the one and, thing uh, we weren't supposed to do. Yeah, the one <laughs> thing, exactly. And that that footage of people in the subway where they're stuck in a subway train as it fills with water. It, I don't know how I'm going to get on a subway train anymore. That's the most terrifying thing I've ever fucking seen. I would, I would literally have died of a heart attack. I would never have made it. Yeah, that I had mentioned this to you before the show, but they are all eerily calm, and I think I similarly would have just been losing my mind. I would have gone pure psycho. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what I would have done. I mean, that's such an unimaginable yeah. uh, situation. And this is then followed, of course by the fact that Siberia has begun its wildfire season. You know, that normal thing that happens. And the coldest region on the planet now has massive wildfires raging all across it. Uh, you know, smoke. They've had to evacuate several cities because of fires and smoke. And um, we're all going to die, right? That's the end fucking conclusion at this yeah. point. yeah. You can be carried away in the water. You can be suffocated by air you can't breathe. Who knows? 
<laughs> you could be living in the middle of a modern high tech country like Germany yeah. or China, and all of a sudden just get uh, flooded like a Saw movie inside the subway and die. Or you could live in the coldest part of the fucking planet <laughs> above the Arctic Circle and just burn alive in a fucking wildfire. Um, at the same time, here in Seattle, we can take a nice big deep breath of clean air because even though Canada is also completely on fire, yeah. uh, all the smoke, thanks to a very favorable wind that's been you know, treating us now for several weeks, all the smoke is just blowing over all the rest of America, including the rest of Washington. But the Puget Sound, as if God just snuck down in there and just blew the smoke gently away from us. The Puget Sound is just carved out on the smoke maps, of not receiving any of it. While New York had its uh, worst, I believe, air pollution day in, I think they said 20 years wow. uh, because of the smoke. Yeah. Well, so. I, I guess, you know, they say God doesn't play dice, but maybe he is a hockey fan since there was that big Kraken <laughs> announcement today <laughs> to make sure that uh, we could hold that outside. Yeah. God was waiting for the Kraken announcement. <laughs> I think yeah. we could all agree. Yeah. And then, you know, probably the most apocalyptic part of all this, which is hard to believe. I mean, all this is happening in the space of a week, right? Yeah. And you just get the feeling like, well, this is just the future forever, right? You know, uh, this will be every summer until it's just all year round, right? Yeah. But um, also this week, there was a report from an organization about uh, India where they were saying, you know, they were examining excess mortality in India over the last year, basically saying deaths above what should be expected from previous years. We're basically estimating that COVID has maybe killed 4 million people in India up to this point, which would double the just right. global total overnight, right? Yeah. It also speaks to the fact that uh, we really have no idea how bad this thing is or is going to get still. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And uh, I think, I mean, not to this extent, but I think that similar claims have been made about even the United States record keeping being mm -hmm. pretty grossly underestimated well i think in one of the articles i read about india they had mentioned they're like you know the same organization said the official count in the u.s is half a million and i immediately stopped and i said who's claiming half a million <laughs> nobody in the, yeah. I, I haven't seen an account of half a million for months like i think yeah. every account i've seen is way over that yeah oh but, yeah uh, yeah but yeah i mean i i think it's clear that the counts are lower which is to be expected honestly i mean it, that's not all just nefariousness i mean it is a fucking pandemic or whatever but uh that that count in india i mean that's that's some sobering stuff and uh marianne you are currently living in thailand and uh you're in the middle of a massive uh outbreak yourself right yeah uh so thailand was uh pretty well known um in world news for all of 2020 as as being sort of um, at the top of its game in terms of handling COVID, um, deaths were still in the single or double digits by the end of 2020. Uh, when we first moved here last August, um, we had to go through a 14-day quarantine when we first came in. Um, and the quarantines here, you actually have to quarantine, so it isn't some like 
bullshit where you just go to your home or your hotel and do whatever you want. Uh, It's not on the honor system. It's not on the honor (laughs) system, Um, which lots of people, you know, grumbled and complained about, but was clearly a big part of, you know, holding back the disease. So you are taken directly from the airport uh, to an approved hotel. Um, You have to quarantine in that room the entire time. Uh, You get two different COVID tests, one on your third day and one, I think, two days before you leave. Um, And then you're allowed out. Um, And so, yeah, through all of 2020, Thailand was doing a a really good job of seemingly handling the virus, keeping numbers low. Um, They'd instituted a lockdown uh, early in the pandemic, but were able to lift that um, by... By the summer. Uh, so by the time we got out of quarantine, life here felt pretty open. Um, so malls, restaurants, movie um, theaters were all open. We started teaching in person uh, with our students, everybody still wearing masks for everything. I think it was striking how much of the population here was just totally on board with masks having come from the United States where that was (laughs) a big argument for some reason. Um, Uh, You mean it wasn't a (laughs) culture war issue on par with Ford versus Chevy? (laughs) It was not. (laughs) There wasn't people there don't have pictures of a uh, young rapscallion named Calvin teen on the mask (laughs) mandate. (laughs) They did not. Um, and you know, so, so things looked pretty, pretty good here and managed to stay that way until, uh, late December, we started to sort of get an inkling that the numbers were, were creeping up a little bit. Um, and so we were on winter break from teaching until I think January 7th and found out about a week before that schools in Bangkok were going to be closed. So we started the the new year, uh, distance teaching that lockdown lasted. And that wasn't really a a full lockdown so much as just big sort of gatherings, which include school were prohibited. That lasted until, um, early February. So it was a few weeks. We went back to teaching, uh, in person and things once again, sort of seemed like they were fine ish, not quite as fine as they'd been back in, in the fall. Um, and then right before, uh, Songkran, you definitely saw that things were getting bad. So Songkran, uh, is the Thai new year festival here. Um, it's a big time for people to go home. Uh, so Thailand, Bangkok is the biggest city in, in Thailand by just magnitudes Uh, about 14 Mm -hmm. million people when the city is actually full which it's not right now uh the next biggest city is chiang mai which has about 150,000 people so there's sort of no comparison it's it's you know a city that draws people from the hinterlands and so they go home back into the country up country um and down south for celebrations like songkran um and a week before Songkran, the numbers were getting bad and they started closing venues, but didn't prohibit travel. And so it was one of those you could see that see what was coming. When we came back from Songkran, the numbers were going to be really bad. Uh, and they were. Folks had gone home, carried the virus with them. 
Um, and so since April, uh, basically mid April, we've been, uh, seeing the numbers get progressively worse and worse and worse. Um, and so, yeah, where we're at now, yesterday we had a daily, um, total of 13,000 new cases. I think that's a record high for the country and things are bad, you know, uh, while the West is, you know, sort of just swimming in vaccines. Uh, Thailand, like most of Southeast Asia, is uh, struggling and really scrambling. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the situation here. Yeah, and you currently, the the current outbreak is mainly the Delta variant, right, which is, of course, more transmissible and all this. It's a bunch. Uh, so the Delta is here. They've found within the same sort of encampments, uh, Alpha and Delta together. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a big mix, but the Delta is certainly a big part of the reason why I think things are as bad this time around as they are. Um, But I think some of this is also just seeing some of the cracks in the the system of containment here. So Mm -hmm. a big part of Thailand's early containment was closing all the borders, which a lot of countries did. Thailand shares borders with Myanmar, Malaysia, uh, Laos, and Cambodia. So they shut down all of these borders. Uh, the problem is that, you know, borders are porous. The, uh, the, the second wave that we had back in December was actually started by a bunch of wealthy people who'd been crossing the border illegally to go to a nightclub in Myanmar. Um, oh, cool. So that was where the first spike was. That was up north near uh, Chiang Rai. And so there was a lot of early on sort of trying to hide that like, oh, well, what it actually is, is uh, undocumented workers from Myanmar. And then it was like, no, it's really these wealthy people that are jet setting all over the place, as has been the case in many areas that are sort of just spreading um, disease everywhere. But Thailand does rely on a large population of undocumented uh, laborers, both from within the country uh, and from out of the country. So a lot of laborers from Myanmar and Cambodia in particular. And uh, Bangkok has seen sort of just, uh, Seattle's used to this too, of course, but about 15 years of just nonstop growth. So condos Mm -hmm. being built constantly. And so there's very large um, construction work encampments here that are not real housing, but rather are tin shacks set up for people to live in. Um, The conditions are incredibly close. People sleeping on top of each other, oftentimes sharing utensils, sharing cups. There are very few masks available. Um, And so it's, the construction camps have become these sort of perfect sites for um, the virus to spread and spread quickly. And early on in the, both the second and and the third waves, when these cases started to pop up, the government's response was to close the construction camps, Mm -hmm. which of course then scattered all the people in those construction camps uh, to different parts of the country. Some attempted to stay in Bangkok, but other folks say, Uh, A lot of folks who lived in northern Thailand or lived in Cambodia were trekking across the entire country 
to make their way back home, spreading the virus as they went. Uh, they've now switched policies and they are now instead um, containing people in the construction camps and turning them into basically sort of mini field hospitals and nobody's allowed to leave until the virus is contained in those camps. But um, yeah, so things are, things are in a bad way and uh, Thailand is, is far behind on its vaccine schedule. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the story of the construction camps is reminiscent of uh, in Washington, where we also rely on a migratory labor force of farm workers who live in encampments, very similarly. And for reasons that can only be explained as a sop to capital, right, uh, they were as declared to be essential workers and were, al- quote, allowed to work, uh, you know, under the watchful supervision of the farmers or the people who own the land who were the ones in charge of the health, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they were allowed to make their own sort of uh, judgments and distinctions about what kind of health precautions should be taken. And then what a shock, uh, there was a massive COVID outbreak amongst farmers. Yeah. Um, so we here in Seattle, because we're all good little, you know, we're all goody good boys who uh, follow the rules and like to stand in line have like a fairly high vaccination rate, although I think it came at a cost of probably a lot of wasted vaccine even here. Mm-hmm. Um, what exactly is the vaccine situation in Thailand right now? Uh, <laughs> so it the situation here is, is a really interesting mix, I think, of very clear um, government corruption and also uh, the consequences of, of the West choosing to hoard vaccine in the way it does. So I'll try to break it down. Um, so the, the Thai government has on their end where um, the Thai people have claimed they've bungled things. And, and this has become part of the protests that are already happening here. Uh, the Thai government was very reticent to uh, put in orders early on for vaccines. They um, definitely put their eggs in just one or two baskets. Um, In particular, the big basket they were trying to put things in uh, was producing their own version of the AstraZeneca vaccine um, through the company Siam or Siam Bioscience. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think back in February, they got approval from AstraZeneca to begin, you know, outfitting the factories, getting things tooled up. They were supposed to begin production uh, in early May. They didn't begin production until June. But the fun story about CM Bioscience is who owns a controlling stake of it, which is the king. Um, and so the complaint here, and, and I think there's some merit to it, is that Uh, The coup government, which works hand in hand with the king, thought that the best choice would be to have CM Bioscience produce this AstraZeneca, and they didn't want a bunch of other vaccines rolling in with it because they wanted it to seem like the king was saving the population. Uh, Because people are not particularly happy with this king and this government. And so this was going to be their big sort of, you know, riding in on a white steed, giving AstraZeneca Mm -hmm. to the people. Uh, And that has not worked out well uh, at all. Yeah. Uh, Surprisingly, uh, it took longer to get the approval from AstraZeneca that the the factory was actually up to the standards, right? 
in the case of these vaccines, you also have to produce a round of the vaccine, send them to the company to get approval that you've actually produced them the correct way. All of that takes time. Uh, and so they are now behind. Uh, the new stuff that has just come out that further complicates the relationship with Ast AstraZeneca. So Thailand is producing, but not simply for itself. CM Bioscience is producing AstraZeneca for the region. Um, mm -hmm. And so AstraZeneca, as they've put out in a, a recent contract agreement they had with Thailand, had agreed to deliver five to six million vaccines to Thailand per month from CM Bioscience. But that is only one third of the productive capacity that the factory has. It can produce up to about 15 million vaccines a month. But those other two thirds need to go to the rest of the region. Um, Thailand is now claiming that they were promised 10 million um, and that they're, at this moment, the government is thinking about putting a blockade on the vaccines because they're so desperate and not allowing them to travel to the rest of the region and instead hold them for itself. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's the entirely predictable result of these patent regimes that, you know, I mean, thanks to the Gates Foundation here in Seattle, uh, thanks to the United States and to Europe, uh, apparently we're going to enforce throughout this COVID epidemic, right? But like, there is a world where uh, you could just say, fuck it, anybody who wants can make this, right? Yeah. And we maybe don't have this kind of hoarding mentality, but the enforcement of patent regimes, I, I think, I if you think about it from the, I guess, the perspective of the Thai government, what else are you supposed to do, right? <laughs> You know, I mean, at some point, like you're kind of responsible for your population, right? You know, what are you supposed to do? It, it's it's the bind that you get put in and the, you know, in this in a marketized economy, I guess. Exactly. Um, and, you know, it, it, it doesn't leave much room for, say, some internationalist thinking of, well, things mm -hmm. are, are worse in Indonesia right now. And that's where some of those vaccines would go. Um Thailand is is definitely sort of struggling and at its capacity in terms of hospitals, but the level of care here, um, the structure of the, the the health system here is much better than some of their neighbors. And so uh, despite the Western press that is just having a field day, you know, taking Thailand to task for its third wave, uh, the deaths are still relatively low in comparison to other uh, Southeast Asian countries, particularly to, to Indonesia. Um, so yeah, so, so the government put most of its eggs in that CM bioscience basket, which is not working out so well for us now. Uh, they've also <clears throat> pretty early on when they saw that it was gonna take a while to actually get the fa factory up and running, they've also bought uh, a decent number of Sinovac. And so, most people in the country who've been vaccinated at this point have been vaccinated with Sinovac. Um, mm -hmm. Due to the anti-Chinese sentiment, which is quite strong in Thailand, there's uh, been a lot of grumbling and complaining about that, um, that it's a useless, worthless vaccine. Um, there's definitely the kind of boomer rumbling that happens, I guess, everywhere about it's just poison and you really shouldn't get it. And hey, look at this Russian doctor who says that COVID's not real. All you need to do is take echinacea. So there's <laughs> there's like some of that stuff too. Uh, but the uh, difference- the olds. The olds. But the difference here being that like when, when the vaccine is available, people do seem to actually line up for it. And there is a lot more 
of just a general sense that even with those rumblings, oh, hey, we should we should take advantage of the healthcare that's being offered when it's offered. Um, so as of right now, about 5% of the country has been fully vaccinated. Uh, I think about 12% of the country have gotten their, their first jabs. Um, but that's not, it's not great. Um, I myself have gotten one jab of Sinopharm, which is another uh, Chinese vaccine. The government has just recently allowed private entities to um, order their own vaccines. And so the, the King's sister has a nonprofit organization that bought a bunch of Sinopharm uh, because a bunch of, uh, a bunch of companies that it basically uh, employ Western immigrants like myself, expats as they're called, but we're immigrants. Let's be real about that. Um, <laughs> so they lobbied the the king's sister to buy Sinopharm for them so that they could uh, vaccinate their employees. And because I work for an international school that is part of an international school consortium, uh, we were allowed to have these vaccines because the school I work for has a pipe dream that somehow in three weeks we're going to open in person, which is stupid. Yeah, doesn't seem uh, likely at this point. Um, so how how are they distributed? Because, I mean, in the United States, they basically, like, had a barrel that said vaccine on it, and they just, like, kicked it over into the street. And if, if... Yeah, they got the the biggest mom they could find to smash a bell and say, <laughs> exactly. and if you could get to it before it, like, went into the storm drain, you basically got vaccinated. So how is it like, how are they deciding? I mean, obviously, so you said that expats maybe got to skip the line a little bit, but how is it decided who gets the vaccine in Thailand? Yeah. So on the part of expats, they've grumbled and complained for the last few months because uh, it hasn't been clear. And the Thai government has gone back and forth on whether or not it'll vaccinate foreigners, all of which I, I, I don't know, like, these are the common questions that nationalism like forces you to ask and to pretend that somehow their countries were better about these things uh, is, is stupid. So there's just been a lot of banter uh, by expats on their little blogs and whatnot about how disappointing this has all been for them, um, which is <laughs> uh, like, I'd hate for them to be disappointed. Yeah. Thailand is a place for a lot of retirees. So you get just a shit ton of like boomers here who love to complain. Um, <laughs> America's greatest export. Yeah, Thailand's so lucky. Um, so, 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 as far as for foreigners, uh, it's been a little up in the air. Uh, China's the only country that I know of that has taken care of its own. So, China calculated the by their census how many people who are uh, Chinese citizens live in Thailand. They sent that many doses plus another 250,000 for the Thai people as payment for Thailand jabbing, like actually injecting their citizens. And so everybody who's Chinese has been vaccinated in the country. Um, the U.S. and other Western countries, of course, famously have, have sort of said, you can go fuck yourselves and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> We're not vaccinating you. You left. You're not our responsibility anymore. Uh, and so, so definitely for, you know, uh, expats, they're, they're sort of at the back of the line, but it was uh, officially announced in June that they would be part of the vaccine rollout. 
the problem with the vaccine rollout is there was a plan, right? A, a similar plan, I think, to lots of other places that we want to vaccinate uh, our elderly and our, you know, immunocompromised first, and then we'll roll things down the line. Um, none of that has gone smoothly because of both the sort of uh, shortage of vaccine and this, and then two other things that this new wave has popped up infections in places and the government has decided that a way to tamp down these flares is by vaccinating. Uh, and then again, the, their economic needs, which for the country, they see their economic need is restarting tourism. And so I think those are the two sort of interesting things that uh, I wanted to talk about. So a lot of vaccine has been diverted to Phuket, mm -hmm. which is an island on the Andaman Sea, very beautiful and just sort of like, if you don't know anything about Thailand, you probably heard Phuket. Um, I believe that's uh, where the Leonardo DiCaprio film The Beach takes place. The Beach. Right? Uh, it actually yeah. takes place slightly away from there on Call PP. Uh, but yes, it. Wait, okay. hold on. Have you been to the beach? The the fabled. I have beach? been to the beach. <laughs> I have. That's I went three years ago uh, when I was here visiting with my partner and and his family. And uh, it was a cloudy day, so nobody was there. So we had the beach to ourselves. Oh wow! Yeah, it was pretty awesome. awesome. Felt felt like Leo. <laughs> <laughs> so so in Phuket they want to reopen, right? So and, uh, and the vaccine getting redistributed there. Yeah, and they what they developed was what they called a sandbox plan. Uh, so the idea was that uh, Phuket you can technically drive onto the island, but there's only one road in and out, making it very easy to monitor who's coming onto the island. And so the sandbox uh, scheme was this idea that starting July 1st, they would reopen to international tourism, which Thailand has not been open to at all since uh, the beginning of the pandemic with certain stipulations. So you would be allowed to fly, but you would need to fly directly uh, into Phuket. At the time, initially, you weren't even allowed to fly through Bangkok and transfer. You needed to like basically fly to Dubai and then fly in from Dubai because uh, that was the main airline that was flying in. Mm -hmm. So you'd fly in. Uh, you had to stay in Phuket for 14 days without going anywhere else. You would need to, upon entry, show both a negative COVID test in your own home country and that you were fully vaccinated. Uh, you would also need to be prepared to pay for COVID tests uh, all, while on the island. If after 14 days you were uh, COVID-free, then you'd be allowed to travel around the country. Now they've had to change that because the numbers have spiked so high. Um, mm -hmm. What they're trying now is to redirect towards like, an island hopping. And so you can be in Phuket and you can't necessarily go into the mainland, but you can go to a couple islands that are where the numbers are low. They're similarly starting a new program that will do the same thing for a series of islands, Kosamui and some smaller islands that are on the, uh, the eastern side of the country. So this sandbox scheme required initially when, they, when it was first proposed and approved by the government back in April, I believe, the requirement was going to be that 70% of the, the population of Phuket needed to be vaccinated fully. And so they started diverting what few vaccines they had to Phuket um, and to other tourist destinations. So 
we've talked to people in other tourist destinations, locals who, who are fully vaccinated because the government is anticipating trying to open those places first. Now, they didn't get to 70% in Phuket. They actually only got to 70% with their first vaccine, um, not their second, but they kind of mm. just decided to go ahead with it uh, and have opened up Phuket. Um, it's It's been a mixed bag. There's not been any sort of huge disasters, but um, there have been several like problematic issues that d- don't bode well for sort of like the tourism dollars. So they made a split decision when one of these planes coming in from uh, the UAE, one person popped positive. And so they told the rest of the plane, you all have to go into quarantine for 14 days, which would be staying in a hotel without being able to leave your room for 14 days. And of course, all of those people who thought they were going to get to be going to the beach were like, that's not fair. We don't know how to do this. And so they ended up having to fly back home. So they got on the same plane that had just dropped them off and left again. So Mm -hmm. the new rule now is that if anybody on your plane is positive, you either have to go into quarantine or go home. Um, So that's dampened a lot of spirits. There's also now the problem that uh, they did allow some flights in mid-July to come in from from Bangkok, but they've now closed the Bangkok airport because the numbers are so bad here. So there are people actually... uh, tourists who are stranded in Phuket because their flight was supposed to fly them to Bangkok and then fly them home. And all those flights have been canceled. So, yeah, so they're now just trapped there. Nowhere to they, go. they are. And so, so vaccines have been distributed uh, with priority towards some of these tourist locations. They've also, there's seemingly been a priority towards taxi drivers so mm-hmm. the few taxi drivers we've, you know, we've mostly been staying at home, but when we've had to go out, talking to the taxi drivers, they're vaccinated, um, Mm -hmm. even here in Bangkok. And that seems to have been like a special program for them, um, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, Bangkok relies on on taxis and motorbikes, motorbikes very heavily. The the public transit here is actually quite expensive. Um, So I don't know, some of that stuff feels like good news, right? You talk to local working class people who are being forced to have you know, Westerners who love not wearing masks and coughing in their faces, vaccinated, I'm totally fine with that. That's, that's great. Mm-hmm. But it has meant the slowdown, of course, of the rollout to the rest of the country. Uh, the other thing that's that slowed things down is that there have been these spikes in construction camps. And a few about a month or so ago, we had some big, big spikes in the prisons. Uh, and this to me is, I think, interesting as, as somebody from the US, where, you know, the attitude seems to be fucking let them die. Uh, and for all of the very real problems and corruption of the, the Thai government, it, the, the choices made here just were very different than choices in the U.S. So um, with the prisons in particular, the choice was to test everybody, anybody who was negative and could be released, they released them. And so they released a ton of people from the prisons just to get them out to stop the crowding problems that were, of course, leading to um these spikes in COVID. And then they also vaccinated prisoners and prioritized vaccinating prisoners and prioritized vaccinating um, construction camp workers, even if they were undocumented. Um, And so those feel just like strikingly different ways to handle the crisis in, in that situation. Yeah. There's a, there's a cutting room floor episode of uh, Seattle sucks from the very beginning of the pandemic 
where I had sort of scripted out this long intro that was going to be like a news show. And we were going to be doing like reports from around the city. And one of the reports was from outside the King County jail. And the, the premise being that it's like resident evil over at the King County jail. Like they've just let the virus spread the T virus spread through the jail. <laughs> and you know, for a variety of reasons, we didn't do it. One of which that was just too bleak. But like as time went on, when it became like, oh no, that's the city's actual plan is just abandon the jail and let everybody die in there. Um, it, I'm glad we didn't do it. It would have been too depressing. But um, yeah. it is this interesting thing. I mean, in in certain areas, so in, in Washington, we eventually decided we'd let, uh, maybe if you were serving, you know, if you've been in King County Jail for six months on a shoplifting charge of uh, taking a sweater from Goodwill, maybe they would let you out, right? So there was some prisoner release. But uh, hilariously, now all those programs, which were in California, Oregon, Washington, all those programs are being used to juice our new tough on crime panic. Uh, we let all the prisoners out. Oh, now, it's Willie now, Horton now, again. Yeah, now all the crimes are happening, you know? Yep. Um, and, Sweaters yeah, are I'm, going missing from the goodwill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's this, uh, it, it's this, I, I, I was very shocked when I heard you say that in Thailand, they like prioritized uh, getting vaccine to inmates because uh, I don't think that any city did that here. I think they eventually yeah. got around to it in some places, but they sure as fuck didn't prioritize it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was shocking to me as well. And it's one of those things reading these, especially reading these Western blogs, but even reading uh, reports that are by Thai folks themselves, but written in English, obviously. I do not read Thai very well. Um, that that was glossed over in this way that it was like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is huge. This is a, a huge sort of showing of interest in people's humanity that mm-hmm. many Western countries just didn't give a fuck about. Um, and so for all of the, the very real problems in the way the vaccine has rolled out here that are the government's fault. And I understand where Thai people are coming from and they should be out in the streets protesting. And that's great. There's also just um, these just very interesting and very different ways of, of handling things that show a, a different outlook towards, you know, what it means to be human and acknowledge humanity and other people that the, the United States certainly has no interest in gave um, up on long ago it seems yeah yeah and i and i think it's interesting i mean because we're talking about all this and i i think in the states they got to vaccinating prisoners about the time when like we we're just awash in vaccines and it was like well nobody outside wants to take it let's just shoot these guys up um but in thailand we're talking about this happening in the midst of a massive vaccine shortage right relative to the population yeah and on the show we've talked a lot about the patent regime how it was going to affect uh you know the vaccine distribution how you know uh the west hoarding vaccines was going to that essentially people like bill gates were engaged in a genocidal project abroad and it's just very stark to actually hear you know uh, how that project is sort of working itself out and how, you know, a country like Thailand by recognizing some people, like being able to recognize some humanity in its own population is able to like maybe mitigate the worst of what Bill Gates wanted to do. 
but it's still, I mean, it's horrifying. I mean, this is the crime of the century kind of shit, right? Yep. I, I heard the story on, you know, I'm a very uh, well-read, uh, worldly person, a real sophisticant, if you will. So I was listening to NPR. <laughs> oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> I was grasping my tote bag tightly. Uh, I was... I just put a crisp sticker on my window uh, for KUOW. <laughs> um, but it was something I had not even occurred to me yet that they brought up, which was, uh, of course, Pfizer, you know, AstraZeneca, Johnson, Johnson are all starting to push this idea of, hey, people are going to need a booster shot for the vaccine, which you know is probably <laughs> true i mean you can't ignore their own personal motivations for wanting mm-hmm. this but it not occurred to me that somebody brought up that oh this means that basically the non-western world or the imperial sort of periphery is now their date for getting vaccinated is going to get pushed back further yep. because of course if boosters come in production's going to be prioritized to the west where they're selling, I think they're saying Johnson Johnson's selling for $20 a shot in the West and is selling for $5 a shot in like, say, countries in Africa. And that basically it means that once again, vaccines could get redirected back into the Imperial Corps, essentially starving out the, uh, you know, the third world, right? Which is, I think the best, the most optimistic estimate was there wouldn't be full vaccination until 2025. And I think some more pessimistic estimates were more like 2040. Um, you know, what kind of, I mean, what kind of impact, it sounds like Thailand has their maybe shit together relatively. Uh, what kind of impacts are we seeing, you know, in places like Indonesia, which is famously turned into a libertarian hellhole by the United States? Yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, like, well, what kind of impacts are we seeing? It's fucking bad. Uh, So Indonesia has just replaced India, which is finally, you know, recovering a bit from their awful spike. Indonesia has replaced India as the worst uh, place in Southeast Asia for COVID with the highest numbers, highest deaths. Uh, And unlike, say, um, Vietnam and Thailand, which have pretty strong public health system. So Vietnam is even stronger. Their death rate is, is quite low, uh, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they're struggling through an, another wave here. Uh, Vietnam also has just started production of Sputnik as well. So they're about to have their own uh, vaccine, I think in the next month or so that they'll be able to distribute. But they have only been able to uh, vaccinate, I think about 4% of their population. Um, Thailand has a fairly strong um, medical system as well. Uh, healthcare is is free here. There are tiered systems. There are a lot of private hospitals because Thailand is also a huge uh, medical tourism destination uh, for the rest of the world. This is a place to come get you know your veneers and your plastic surgery and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, your LASIK, your eye surgery. I had a friend that just got it, and I think it costs a thousand dollars for the whole thing so yeah um but anyways uh yeah things in in thailand and places like vietnam uh even myanmar is not doing too too badly uh because there's there's actually some infrastructure of healthcare. um it's being pushed to its limits right now but 
it was at least substantial to begin with, as opposed to Indonesia, which, yeah, has dismantled all of that uh, and mm. is just completely overwhelmed. Um, so Indonesia was planning a similar sandbox for Bali. Uh, they were desperate to also get tourism regoing, and they had tried to isolate Bali. They were going to vaccinate there, blah, 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 all those things. Bali is now one of the highest spikes in the country. They've had to completely scrap that plan. Um, and I, I think we're getting close. I think there's been, I think how many deaths there have been. I think there have been about 72,000 deaths in Indonesia so far. I think there's 2 million cases in the country. Uh, it's it's just a mess, <laughs> uh, yeah. and and one that doesn't seem like it's going to get better anytime soon. Uh, I don't know that Indonesia has its own vaccination plan either in terms of producing the vaccine in country. So I believe they're a place that you know, with that decision of Thailand to say hoard AstraZeneca for itself, it would be affecting a place like Indonesia who's counting on that vaccine. Yeah, and I mean it's interesting because in sort of looking at some of the details of the story that's sort of unfolding in Southeast Asia, you see all the reasons why this pandemic has become the disaster that it's going to be right. Which is, you know, the sort of Imperial stranglehold over patent regimes regarding medicine, uh, the various Imperial conflicts that lead to say, Thailand, uh, maybe not wanting to accept the Chinese vaccines mm -hmm. initially, even though nothing was on order from the West, uh, right? But also you see how, you know, the intense pressure in these places that rely on tourism to essentially take up the, like, uh, mayor from Jaws position, at, you know, yes. in Amityville or whatever, right? You know, like, hey, you know, as long as, it, you know, as long as it's not just, you know, one shark attack today, we'll keep the beach open. okay. There was one shark attack, but maybe two shark attacks is the limit, right? You know, like there's this intense pressure to act in ways that are clearly going to make the pandemic worse because we're trapped in this sort of system of capital accumulation, right? And all that's left is the humanity of the people in charge, which we can debate <laughs> to, to maybe uh, to curb the worst excesses that could potentially be available and, you know, um, I mean, as as the rest of the capitalist world, uh, the capitalist class slowly ascends into full lizarddom like Jeff Bezos. I mean, you know, this gets to be a, a worrisome uh, predicament that we're all in. Yeah, it does. And, you know, it's just having sort of lived through a good chunk of um, pandemic here in Thailand now. It's just, it's, it's sad to see like that on a national scale, there hasn't really been this dreaming of like, what, how could we come out of this pandemic different? Um, mm -hmm. You know, how, how is this a chance to not rely on tourism in the ways that we've had? Because Thailand is, a, is actually a really interesting country in the sense that it is food sub, um, food sufficient it's one of like i think 16 countries in the whole world that is the so thailand produces everything it needs for itself here uh something that we you know that often gets talked about in like revolutionary circles is like a major component for independence yeah. uh, thailand has that 
And so in some ways, this like dependence on international dollars is artificial. Uh, it's unnecessary. And instead is tied, I think, to legacies, again, yeah, of the ways that colonialism, right, Thailand may never have been officially colonized, but it but is very much colonized in the mind. So the, the current king grew up and spent his entire life and still does spend most of his time in Germany. Um, there, there's an affinity for whiteness and Westernness and some of it is, is interesting to, to look at being here in the country because it seems unnecessary. The economic crisis right now because of tourism doesn't have to exist. There's absolutely a way for this country to be self-sufficient um, and focus on other industries, not even thinking about stepping outside of capitalism. Uh, and so for the country to be hurting as badly as it is, which Thailand, one of the big things that citizens are quite angry about is that there's been almost no relief at any level. So there's not been relief for the wealthy. There's not been relief for the poor. There's just been fucking no relief. Uh, I think they've handed out a couple different times to some of the poor, these 2000 bot vouchers, which is less than a hundred dollars us for some food or something, but it's, there's just been nothing um, in terms of relief. And so, yeah, to me, that's just an interesting thing. Thinking about Thailand as, as, say, maybe differently positioned than some of some of the other countries in the region is it kind of doesn't have to exist in this game. Um, I, I was thinking about this in particular, thinking about New Zealand and some of the ways that New Zealand's government has decided to um, block off or severely limit access to certain natural um, tourist sites in New Zealand that... Mm-hmm. They've taken the opportunity of the pandemic to say, wow, these are places that have sort of come back and are much more resilient now that there's not millions of people climbing all over them. And that (laughs) the communities that relied on the tourism here, we're actually going to shift focus and shift dollars towards those communities to build the types of, you know, work, industry, whatever is necessary for people to live without Mm -hmm. that living being reliant on tourism because it's not sustainable. Um, And I think it's one of the few places I've read a story like that about, but Thailand is certainly in a position to do something like that, but has made no moves at the government level to even imagine a future like that. Well, you know, we must protect our shires, but yeah, the, you know, (laughs) I mean, that's the thing that's interesting about this pandemic. Uh, It's interesting that's happening I, and I think not coincidentally, but interesting that's happening right at this sort of what feels like should be some sort of crossroads moment regarding climate change, regarding the neoliberal order, et cetera. And that, I mean, we described uh, the videos we were watching this week all around the world of subways flooding and stuff. I feel like we're at this point where you look out and you just say, I mean, just with your own eyes, you see everything's falling apart, you know, capitalism's burning the planet alive um you know all these insane weather events are happening that you know really can only be you know attributed to climate change uh at the same time you know jeff bezos is taking vanity missions into space while there's like massive homeless people in the city that he lives in like numbers of homeless people in the city that he lives in uh nobody can afford rent right like all this stuff is staring people in the face and you would think oh this pandemic this is the moment where people are going to stop and say 
maybe we shouldn't like live like this anymore. <laughs> maybe, mm-hmm. maybe the way this whole thing is working is the problem and we should do something else. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess as, as Lennon would say, uh, you shouldn't count on spontaneity in these moments, right? No. And in the U S uh, it certainly has not served us well. Um, but what, what's happening in, in South Asia? I mean, you know, is there any like signs that somebody at least is envisioning a different type of world? You know, there's at least a lot of signs of rebellion and unrest. Um, so here in Thailand for the last year or so, there have been uh, protests that started with students and started with university students very quickly included public school students Um and now also includes a lot of the sort of elders of, of the red faction, which is mm-hmm. uh, a reform party faction. Uh, yellow is the color of the king. So the yellow faction the supporters red of faction the king. sounds way cooler than it is. <laughs> <laughs> it just means the red shirts is oftentimes what they're called too. Um, so there have been protests here ongoing. There even were uh, protests just last Saturday. Um, so just a few days ago, even though, we're in the midst of the pandemic of folks coming out and protesting. Uh, at this point, they've moved from calling just for reform to they're calling for the entire government to step down. They're calling for uh, the king to also, a lot of them are calling for him to completely abdicate, which may not seem so big in countries that, that don't have a king, right? Like that have whatever moved past this, but to, to in any way denounce the king here is is a big step. So Thailand has some of the strongest, what are called les majest laws, laws that protect the king. Um, so speaking out, saying anything against the king can land you 15 to 35 years in jail. There have yes. been several protesters that have been arrested. It doesn't even have to be a direct thing. The government is very good, right, at saying, well, that thing you said kind of related to the king because ultimately this is the king's purview or whatever, so to jail with you. Uh, there are some really good uh, sort of critiques of this going back, but there are several, you know, uh, Thai writers who, who are exiled who live in other places because they would be arrested and thrown into jail here. Um, so, so actually getting to the point where the protests are naming, removing the king from power is, is a big step here. Uh, Past protests, where the red shirts were at, uh, which is probably like a, at this point, like our our boomer generation, some maybe Gen X, where they were at uh, a few years ago, even even 2009, really, was still at a place of the king is being led astray. What you're doing is not right to the king. And so they were upset with the government that they refused to Mm. include the king in that. it helps that this king is super unpopular. Uh, he's sort of like the Donald Trump of kings, right? He's, he's, he's <laughs> the, like the, the one before him who was well-beloved was a fucking open fascist, but he was really suave about doing it <laughs> as opposed to his son, who's a big dumb dummy and, you know. <laughs> Fail son. <laughs> yeah, likes to have harems of women in hotels in Germany and that's embarrassing. Right. So like yep. that has helped people sort of start to make this connection that, Oh, maybe like the crown is involved in this, especially since 
the crown hoards a lot of the wealth of, of the state. So uh, he is the richest monarch in the world. I believe he has an individual fortune of something like $70 billion, all of which is expropriated from mm-hmm. the Thai people. I mean, he um, didn't get it through his honest labor? He, he somehow didn't, <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so the protests here um, have been pretty continuous. Um, there's still definitely most of them at this place of sort of like wanting a, a reform in the government. Uh, the, the current government is a coup government, one of many. Um, and so wanting free and open elections, wanting uh, the reform party that, that has a small foothold uh, in, in the government to, to sort of be allowed free and open elections to be in charge. Um, there are small pockets in the protests of something a little more radical and revolutionary, uh, but it's that's still pretty nascent here from what I can tell as, as an outsider. Um, I, what has happened here has in, inspired though. So obviously recently Myanmar has gone through another coup itself uh, and there've been protests in Myanmar and the protests there have both sort of fed off of what's happening in Thailand. So in Thailand, uh, their sign of dissent is uh, the three finger salute that Katniss gives in the Hunger Games <laughs> when when Rue dies. So they oh, use that here, which is a sign, I think, of the age of sort of the leadership of the protests. It's very cute. <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. Um, that has spread to other Southeast Asian countries. So that's used in Myanmar as well. And so there's just these sort of small symbols that show that um, the youth of these countries are watching each other, um, which I think is exciting, right? It means they're paying attention to what's happening, not just in their own country, but they're they're making the connections to that in other places, which, you know, is that spontaneous consciousness now, but it's, it's looking outside of yourself, which is, I think, something to be hopeful about. Uh, the protests in Myanmar, I think, have a, a, a more militant character, so they actually turned into general strikes a few months ago, so actually saying let's remove our labor from uh, the power of the government and use that as a a leverage point to demand that the coup government uh, resign. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's still a coup there, but there's, so that's sort of the character of the protests in Myanmar. Uh, And then the protests in Indonesia, uh, which were happening as recently as, as March of this year, although again, with, with COVID getting as bad as it has, it's, it's been hard for people to gather uh, the c- protests in Indonesia are very much of the same character as the farmers' protests in, in India. So in Indonesia, uh, the government is trying to pass yet another round of incredibly awful neoliberal reforms on labor that would allow for the further sort of strengthening of the bosses, the um, weakening of the unions, the allowing of contract labor, lowering wages, removing benefits. Uh, and so workers have been... Um, out in the streets protesting that in Indonesia. And then, of course, at this point, it's been, I think, almost a year that farmers in Punjab and in India have been uh, protesting the Modi government and the austerity measures um, in India. So it's the thing, you know, you try to hold on to is that things fucking suck and there's no vaccines here. And it's been really hard, you know, especially for folks in India and now Indonesia, it's been COVID has been just absolutely devastating. You know, we we've been I think quite lucky here in Thailand. I've had a few students who um, are from India 
who still have family there. And it was just, you know, a nightmare for them. Um, but it's promising to see that uh, shitty stuff isn't getting people down in terms of keeping them from getting out in the streets and, and protesting this stuff. And so I, I don't know that I can say that any of it is, you know, full organized revolution yet, but it's, it's people at least not giving up, not succumbing to the hell world that it seems like we're living in. And that's something. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's always so hard because I mean, not just in the U S but across the world, I mean, just any sort of people's movement, any sort of left movement has been, you know, dead essentially since the fall of the Soviet union. And, uh, it was weird in Seattle uh, last summer when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on and there was lots of stuff happening, uh, despite all the horrifying things that were happening in the city, like cops hitting people with their cars, friends of cops hitting people with their cars, the attempted mass shooting and you know, Cal Anderson, all that kind of shit. Uh, it was like it felt very hopeful, way more hopeful than it's ever been in this city, I felt like. Um that maybe something could change or something could be different. And, uh, you know, since that died down, I mean, it, it feels, <laughs> let's say significantly less. So, uh, although I guess, uh, you know, maybe Colin could speak to all the, all, uh, uh, the libs who are very excited about this new Biden administration. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that felt very much like a kick in the teeth, but, um, it, it is, you know, seeing the stuff in India, I think, which sometimes gets dismissed here, uh, of course, by every armchair leftist who would definitely have done it better had they been in charge. Uh, you know, it, it, it's hopeful to see people not giving up. Right. That's all. That's mm -hmm. all we can hold on to at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would add to that that when I was reading about the protest in uh, Thailand, I found it pretty remarkable uh, to hear that they, it sounded like they were bringing um, like faux dead bodies basically as part mm -hmm. of their protest. And it made me reflect on the American reaction. I mean, apart from the BLM movement, which Brian just talked about, which those protests were mostly hopeful and good. Um, there was no, that I recall, no protest analogous to this of um, people being upset about the way that this has been handled, mm -hmm. about the number of people that have died. Um, instead, I think the only kind of protests we got related to COVID were about mask mandates, which is just, just that is sort of an interesting thing to see and hear as an American um, that, as you both have said, that there is some, <laughs> there is some hope out there that there are people pushing back against things that seem obviously bad that we should be pushing. Yeah. And I think it, it really raises an interesting point. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up that, and it is an interest. It, it's funny being here and seeing people upset about the numbers, uh, both the numbers sort of like of infections and the deaths, because just having experienced part of the pandemic in the U S and then watching it from here, it's like, we're nowhere near where that was <laughs> that was bad right and yet yeah. and yet yeah totally. for for folks here to be upset with this as a mishandling which it absolutely is but to to see this loss of life that feels to me uh small by comparison i think is a sign of like a, a different sense of like 
humanity and government responsibility to yeah. health and welfare that definitely has just been drained mm-hmm. out of the U.S. And it, it really sort of, um, I, I was talking to Brian about this before, I think it runs and flies in the face of sort of that old idea of you know, these sort of like West's racism towards Asia as this horde, um, this sort of nameless, mm-hmm. faceless mm-hmm. horde of people, right? When they talk about, say, encountering uh, an Asian country, or culture in war or in battle that, oh, they'll just throw wave after wave at you because they just don't care uh, about life or Mm -hmm. death. And yet uh, the protests that are happening in all of these countries, exactly as you're sort of talking about with the one here in Thailand, show exactly the opposite, that there's actually deep care (laughs) for for life and Mm -hmm. that it extends on such a level that you would call out your government for loss of life in a place like Thailand at a much lower rate than in the U.S., where instead the concern is, why are you making me wear this piece of paper on my face? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or as I would uh, find to my horror, just people completely blankly staring at you when you tell them how many people a day are dying from COVID. Mm -hmm. Like it matters. Yeah, I mean, some of the bleakest episodes of the show were when somehow it was just me and Colin on here uh, (laughs) sharing our stories Doomer yeah, at hours. the height of the um, at the height of COVID here, where we were doing nine eleven every day, right? And then uh, <laughs> yeah. and the, how like people just you could, just couldn't bring anybody here to give a shit. Like it, it really was astonishing, and it, to this day, I mean, it really shocks me that this isn't all that we talk about. That we killed, you know, a civil war amount of dead people in a year. Uh, <laughs> and nobody talks about it or thinks about it or anything like that. And yeah. it, it's interesting you brought up the point, Marianne, about the uh, the sort of the Orientalist view of of the you know sort of, of the Asiatic, right? And like the you know during the Korean War, during the war in Vietnam, you'd always get U.S. generals who would you know without fail say you know look, you know, the problem here is that, you know, the Asian doesn't care about human life, right? You know, not like us in the West, Mm -hmm. which is why we have to kill 2 million of them. And, you know, it has very reminiscent of the the old Israeli saying about, you know, the worst thing the Palestinians, you know, did is make us kill their children. Um, It really... It's both a disgusting sentiment meant to prop up empire and the violence of empire, but it's it's interesting in its negative actually says everything, which is that the West has no concern. <laughs> like in the United States, we have no concern about human life, and the pandemic has shown, including our own, <laughs> like no concern. Once you're dead, fuck yeah. you. You're out. You're out of the party, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, uh is interesting to hear of the response in another country where uh, I guess it's good to hear that humans still care whether or not another person uh, suffers or dies. <laughs> That's that is heartening in a weird way. It's pretty, pretty nice. Yeah. The idea that human life could still be seen as precious, even if yeah. it's not your own, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having any value whatsoever, <laughs> you know, that's great. Well, Maybe that's uh, the note we should end on. (laughs) (laughs) As hopeful as it's going to get, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me. for making the time. Yeah. Uh, Our pleasure. Good night. Bye.